you are visiting this morning, stop by the, the welcome tables. They're right back where the lights are in the back there, and we have a gift for you we'd love to bless you with today. We are uh, on what will be the last Sunday of a series that I've entitled Character Foundations. Character Foundations. And this morning, uh, we're going to be taking a look at compassion. Compassion as a character foundation. If you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 and Luke chapter 10, uh, those are two places that we're going to be uh, taking a look at this morning. Um, the, the, you can read in your Bible there, or the verses will be up on the screen as well. You can follow along with that. Uh, also, in our app, if, uh, if you have that or if you want to download it, all of the sermon notes and all these passages are listed in there uh, as well, and you can take notes and save them on your device. We've been talking about character foundations. Character uh, it, just a very simple definition, not a complete definition, but a simple definition would be just who you are when no one is looking. It's those things that make us a person of integrity. And we understand that a person who lacks character is, is someone who's duplicitous, someone who is one thing one, in, in one place and someone else somewhere else. And so there becomes this consistency in our lives. Good character, it really becomes foundational for us. And we understand this, that the foundations, uh, in, in thinking about a building, the foundation is the part of the building that everything else is built on top of. If you don't have a good foundation, that your house would be in trouble, a building uh, would be in trouble. I heard recently about a building in San Francisco, a high-rise condominium uh, building uh, in, in these apartments that were selling for millions of dollars. Someone messed up. Someone made a mistake and did not, they didn't uh, establish a good foundation. And since its opening last year, this building has sunk 18 inches. And we just agree that's a problem, Right? <laughs> And now they're in the midst of a blame game where the city is blaming the contractor and the contractor is accusing the city and then it's this, right? And I tell you what, if I'm living in that building, well, I wouldn't be living in that building, right? 18 inches and it's San Francisco? No way. There's no way. A good foundation is critical. It's not something that we necessarily pay attention to. It's not pretty. It's not... Something, you know, in the construction process, a good foundation isn't satisfying. You don't pour a good foundation and go, wow, that just looks really good. You just go, ah, it's a foundation. But if you skimp on the foundation, everything that comes after is going to be in jeopardy. The same thing is true in our lives. There are foundational things in our lives. There's foundational doctrine, who we believe God is and, and, and what we believe about His Word is absolutely foundational to us. Character is foundational as well. That who we are as, as, as followers of Jesus Christ is built on all of these different aspects of, or, or foundations in our lives. And we need to make sure that we're paying attention to the right stuff. Because it's sometimes we want to build the facade. We want to build the thing that looks good to people. And we skip the important process in our private lives of building solid foundations. If, if solid foundations. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49, He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what He is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. 
When a flood came, the uh, and the torrent struck that house. Uh, when a flood came, the found. I'm sorry, I'm losing my place. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. When you build a house, you've got to make sure the foundation is solid because when the storms come, your house could be shaken. And the lack of foundation, as Jesus says here, will result in the destruction. Now, Jesus was not giving construction advice. He was not a builder. It was not his place. He, he wasn't concerned about building houses. He was concerned about building lives that would last, that would stand the test of time. But he ties it back to saying this. If you listen to my words, if you do the things that I tell you to do, not just listening, but putting them into practice, that is the equivalent of a builder digging down, finding the rock, and building that house on the rock. And so the key here is that we hear what God has to say, and then we do it. Sounds easy, doesn't it? I mean, you say it like that. Come on. Doesn't that just sound easy? Listen to what God says and do it. How, have, how many of you have found that that's not as easy to do as it is to say? Right? We should just all be raising our hands. Let me help you out. It would be so, it, it, life would look so different. It's that phrase, like, I saw that going differently in my head. Right? We apply that to our lives. It's so often because we go, oh, I, I, I like the way that sounds, but then we fail to put it into practice and we don't do it. And Jesus says that it's the equivalent in your life of building a house on sand. It is not going to last. So a foundation of a house is built on, uh, on rock or set on rock. The foundation of our lives is Jesus Christ. And the things that he produces in our lives, those places of character, really become cornerstones. They become anchors for us as we walk through our lives. We've been talking about the fact that, that our, our, our private lives support our public lives. What is unseen, what happens behind, the, behind closed doors and, and, and away from people's eyes and from their view is what supports everything else that is going on in our lives. And so we, we have this picture, it's just a simple little sketch Right Here we have the public and the private. So the private life is that thing that supports. It needs to be as wide and it needs to be as strong, if not stronger, than what's above uh, seen in the public. But so often what we do in our lives is this. We have this, this diminutive, this small private life where anything goes and I give my permission, myself permission to not do the things that God's told me to do. And here's the thing, we think we're getting away with it. But it's in the public life, in the public arena, where we have to then work hard to try and stop this thing from falling down. And it's exhausting. I heard someone say recently that, that sin is like taking balloons and holding them underwater. Right? And to keep them underwater is just exhausting. And you're just constantly having to adjust. But it's when we allow God to expose those things lovingly in our lives and bring them into the light as we walk in obedience and humility and like we talked about last Sunday in brokenness before Him. That brokenness is a character trait. 
because it opposes pride that says, I've got it all figured out. We hear it in the voices of the, the apostles. The deeper they got with Jesus, the more aware they were of their condition, which makes us like David, like we read this morning, so desperate for him. So we have to make sure that what is in private can sustain and support what is in public. We have to dig deep. So we've looked at obedience. We've talked about humility and brokenness. If you missed any of those messages, by the way, you can, you can listen to them online or on the podcast. But this morning we want to talk about compassion. Compassion is a character trait. It's something foundational in our character and I want to encourage you this morning, as we move through the passages and through the material today, I'll, I'll make a couple of points, but I'm going to encourage you to do this. Would you open your heart to the Lord? Because I think there's going to be some places that you could go, oh, I'm, I'm good in that, but, but there might be some places where the Holy Spirit touches your heart and says, we've got some work to do. There's some things that need to be shored up. There's some cracks that need to be addressed. And so my prayer this morning is that the voice of the Holy Spirit would just drown out my voice and that you would receive from him what it is he wants to do in your heart and life this morning. Luke chapter, 20, Luke chapter 10 verse 25 through 37, we hear and read about the encounter that Jesus has uh, with a smart guy with a teacher of the law, and they have an encounter and an exchange that leads Jesus to sharing a story that challenged those who were listening. It's the story of the, and the parable of the good Samaritan. Starting in verse 25 of chapter 10, it says this, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Okay, so, so this man is an expert in the law. He knows. He knows the answer to the question, right? But he's trying to trick Jesus. He's trying to back him into a corner. So Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The conversation could have been done at this point. But it wasn't. So this man continues, he says, it says that he, because he wanted to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I just point out, he didn't have a problem with the loving God piece. Right? Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he fell into the hands of robbers, and he fell into hands of robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be walking down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, and when he came to the place where he saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he looked, he took pity rather on him. When, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, 
When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the man who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. You know, we read these parables and we read these stories that Jesus told and, and, and we kind of read them out of context because we don't understand the culture. But, but this story would have been offensive to the Jews. Like Jesus regularly went to the extreme. When he was confronted with really what is ridiculousness, he went to the extreme to make his point, and that's exactly what he does right here in this story. So the man, this expert in the law, who would have been involved in, 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 in studying the Scriptures and interpreting the Scriptures along with the priests and the Levites, he was entrenched in the religious system of the time, who, who had a deep understanding of the Word of God, stands up and wants to challenge and test Jesus. So, so his motive is wrong right out of the gate. I'm not interested in learning. I just want to, I want to put you on the spot. I want to back you into a corner. And he says, what must I do? What must I do? What hoops do I have to jump through? What steps do I have to take? And we can kind of read between the lines here. What's the shortest, easiest way for me to get to where, from where I am to salvation? Right? I don't want to, I want to take the long route. Give me the shortest, easiest way to get to where I want to be. And so Jesus asked him, well, you know the law, what does it say? And so he answers, and he gives the technically correct answer. How often in our lives do we walk through our relationship with God and people, and we have the technically correct answer, but we completely miss the point? I'll let you just sit on that and allow the Holy Spirit to challenge that in you. So he answers, and he says, love God, love people. That's the condensed version. We have to love God with everything we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and so Jesus says, you're right. If you do these things, you will live. And like I said, they could have stopped right there. But there's a problem, the man wanting to justify himself. Why does he want to justify himself? Because he knows there's error in his life. See, he knows he's not living that out. So what he's saying to Jesus and asking who is my neighbor, what he's saying is, would you simply give me a list that I can go off of that tells me who I can love or who I need to love and who I can leave out? That, that's what he's saying. Because he knows... The language tells us that because he wants to justify himself. So he knows he's not doing a good job of this already. So he wants Jesus to make him feel better about his error. Can I tell you this morning, Jesus will never make you feel better about things that are in error in your life. That he will always challenge the things that are contrary. That Jesus' role in our lives isn't to just make us feel better about ourselves. It's to transform us. It's to conform us to his image. Wanting to justify himself. 
So in response, rather than saying, hey, here's the list, here's what you need to do, he tells this story. There was this man, and he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. That road that goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho descends a couple of thousand feet through a mountain pass, and all along the way there's just hundreds of caves. The, the highway that exists in that place today is built on top of the ancient road that this man would have walked down. And all along the way, there's caves where robbers would hide, and they would jump out, and they would attack people. And so the story wouldn't have been far-fetched, because people would have understood. If you were sitting in the crowd, or being, you were around Jesus hearing the story, you would have been like, oh yeah, I've been there. Oh, I heard, yeah, my buddy was there last week, and he got robbed. And so it would have touched on something that was very familiar and very close to them. This man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And he was come upon by thieves, and they beat him, stripped him of his clothes. And and, and the severity of this is they left him half dead, which in a time where there wasn't advanced health care was a problem. If you were half dead, you were as good as dead, that you weren't going to make it. And he says, here's this man lying on the side of the road, and a priest comes down, walking by, a priest who would have been the epitome of the clergy and the religious institution of that day. The the priest whose job it was to represent God to the people and the people to God. This priest comes down and when he sees him, says, I'm going to go by on the other side. I'm going to put as much distance between that man and myself as I want. Now there might have been considerations. See, because he might not have known if he was dead. And for a priest to touch someone who was dead would have been unclean. That was a problem. There's probably all kinds of things running through his mind as to why he shouldn't and couldn't that made him feel better about himself. So he doesn't help the guy out. A Levite comes by who also was a professional minister. Both the priests and the Levites made their living by working in the temple. The Levites were the ones that, that, that set up the, the, the places of sacrifice. They would, they would set up, basically, it was, we call our team, that the setup team here, Levites, by the way. Why? Because they prepare the house of the Lord for the people of the Lord. So the crew that shows up on, on Friday nights and the crew that's here that tears down on Sunday afternoons, which, by the way, we don't have to do today because it's spring break. Praise the Lord. Um, We call them Levites. Why? Because the Levites were charged with setting up the house and preparing the house of the Lord for worship. And so they were fully entrenched and fully uh, just involved in the work of ministry. So these would have been the ministers of that day, the clergy, the pastors, and the leaders in the church. He too comes along and sees the man and goes by on the other side. Jesus is making a point. The people that should have and could have and really needed to, didn't. Now, this is the point in the story where it gets interesting, and he says, but a Samaritan, at that moment, all the Jews in the crowd, which was probably most of the people, would have gone, what? A Samaritan? Their assumption would have been that the Samaritan was the robber because that's what they did. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. They viewed them as half-breeds. See, the the Samaritans were Jews that had intermarried with other tribes and other people groups. and, And the pure Jews hated the Samaritans. They despised them. 
And they understood if anyone was going to be the attacker, it would have been the Samaritan. He wouldn't have been the helper in the story. And so there were racial, cultural, and religious divides between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews thinking that they were the better ones. What's amazing to me is they worship the same God. They worship the same God. We know that when Jesus has the encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, they worshiped the same God, but there were all kinds of issues about how they worshiped him and where they worshiped him. But at the end of the day, it was the same God. Jesus says that this man comes along and the despised man cares for the man who despises him. The man who had the least reason to help comes over, bandages his wounds, pours oil and water on them, the oil to to wash them. The olive oil would have been used as an antiseptic to stop the infection. And he takes him, puts him on his own animal and takes him to an inn, cares for him for a day, interrupts his journey from wherever he was going, and then cares for him and then gives the innkeeper two pieces of silver, which was a ton of money, and says, look after him, and when I come back, I'll pay you whatever the difference is. Everything that Jesus was saying was counter to the culture and offensive to the people listening. But he didn't start the conversation, did he? He's just answering a question. So out of these three people, looking back at the expert in the law, who was his neighbor? And the expert in the law is stuck. He's backed into a corner. He's the one who wanted to back Jesus into the corner. And this turned around on him very quickly. Who is his neighbor? The one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus' Jesus's words are so simple and yet so profound. Go and do likewise. Here's this guy going, well, who is my neighbor? Who, let me justify myself. Let me see what I have to do and what I don't have to do to fulfill the law. I want the shortest, easiest way to heaven. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus says to him, in essence, everybody is your neighbor. Everybody is your neighbor. The person that you have the least regard for, the person that you like the least, that you would even so go far as to say, I hate that person. They are your neighbor. This man's world got wrecked in this moment. That must have just lingered in his heart and his mind probably for the rest of his life. See, We have to understand that compassion is not a few things. I'm going to talk about what compassion is not for a few minutes, and then we're going to talk about what it is. See, compassion is not judgment. Compassion is not judgment. We judge people for all kinds of reasons and in a moment, don't we? We just do it. We judge people based on gender, on physical attributes, on race, race and ethnicity, on social standing, on employment status, right? We look at people and go, hey, you don't measure up because of, and we fill in the blanks. And why do we do it? Because we want to justify ourselves. That we're no better than the expert in the law. 
that we're looking for places and ways to justify our behavior and the way that we feel. And to make ourselves better, we judge other people. We look at them and we size them up and we go, I'm doing better than they are. That is not compassion. We judge based on financial status. So people who are wealthy and people who are poor at these different ends of the spectrum, right? These people are more deserving of compassion or less deserving of compassion. That, that nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say that your financial standing determines what level of compassion you receive. In fact, he said it's more difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's not because just the hardness of their hearts. I think it's because people avoid them and go, they're not deserving of compassion because they have everything they need. Right? And we avoid the people that the heart is to reach. Everyone is deserving of compassion. Where they live, what they drive, how they dress, who their friends are, and the list goes on and on and on and on and, and on. And here's the thing, and it's the danger for us when it comes to compassion and our hearts being, and the character, uh, the foundation of character and compassion in our lives being eroded is this. We think we know, but we don't. We think we can look at someone and know who they are and what's going on in their lives, and we don't have a clue because we're all pretending and we're all faking it and we're all putting on a show to let everyone else know that we're doing okay. The reality is this, pain is pain. The packaging doesn't tell the whole story. Pain is pain. See, what compassion should do for us is initiate a conversation. It should initiate something in us that says, hey, what's going on in your life? Tell me your story. Our stories are so powerful. It doesn't, and you're like, oh man, now I have to bear my soul. No, Right? Don't make it weird. Invite someone to lunch and go, I'd love to just get to know you. Tell me your story. Where do you come from? What's the story of your life? And it might be an easy story. It might be a really hard story. And part of the reason we have a hard time listening to stories is because we don't shut up long enough to listen. Tell me your story. Where do you come from? What are things, you know, kind of what's made you who you are? Why do you do the work that you do? And just get to know people. And what you'll find is that their story is probably very different from what you assumed it is. The only way you can know someone's story is if they tell you. I say that again. The only way that you can know someone's story is if they tell you because it's their story to tell. Don't ask someone else to tell someone else's story. Because at the end of the day, that's called gossip. It's not your story to tell. It's their story to tell. And we start playing with fire when we get into that. That's a whole nother sermon. And then, know this, even if they tell you, they're only going to tell you as much as they feel safe to tell you. People will only tell you as much as they feel safe to tell you as much as they trust you is what they will tell you. 
And so we have to work it hard at building people's trust so that we can know them and vice versa. So that people can tell their stories. It's rare in this day and age to have friendships where we're completely transparent with each other. I have a handful of people, and I mean literally count them on one hand of people that I could say they know everything about me. Everyone else doesn't know my whole story. And so we can't jump to conclusions. So judging each other is dangerous because we think, oh, I know. I know why that guy got beat up. And we fill in the blanks. Why? Because we care about him? No, because we're trying to justify why we don't have to care about him. Whew. We doing all right? There's good news coming. See, the sad reality is easier for us to be a building inspector than it is to be a friend. And we like to go around putting our hard hats on and our vests and our clipboards and looking at everyone else's building and their foundations and going, that's some pretty big cracks you got going on there. Oh, that side of the house isn't even finished. You can see right through it. And we make our little check marks because we go, ah, I feel better about me. And that's brokenness. Jesus makes this statement. John 12, 47. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, listen to this. I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. I read that and I'm like, oh, I've read this before. I did not come to judge the world. This is Jesus. If anyone could judge, it would be Jesus. But he says, listen, my assignment wasn't to judge. That's going to come later. There will be a time where we stand before God and he, God and he judges our lives. That's going to happen. But right now in this season, my job is not to judge. My job is to love people and see them saved. And can I tell you this morning, your job is not to judge. Your job is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Judging is easier. The gospel takes hard work. So compassion is not judging. Compassion is not advice either. People do not need your advice. Sometimes even when they ask for it. People do not need your advice. You know what people need? They need someone who will listen to them. Good counselors don't give advice. What they do is they listen. They just listen. Could have said to the man on the side of the road, listen buddy, if you had just gone another way, or if you had gone at a different time of the day, or if you had made sure you weren't dressed that way, If you had made sure that you kept your money bag inside where it was supposed to be. If you hadn't been a jerk to your family before you left, maybe you just got what you deserved. And we try to give advice, and advice is cheap. Let me tell you how I would do it. Let me tell you what you should have done. In the moment when someone is hurting, the last thing they want to hear is what they should have done. Can I get an amen? 
We've all been there. I already know I messed up. Crossed that bridge. I don't need to go back and revisit it because what we then do is we heap on shame. And shame doesn't come from the heart of God. It comes from somewhere else. It's a pit. We don't need to give advice. Advice is not compassion. The other thing that is not compassion is this. It's called enculturation. And as a church, we've been doing this for millennia. What we do is we go into a culture, we share the gospel, we tell them about Jesus and say, now that you love Jesus, you need to start dressing and acting and looking like me. And on the world mission front, what we've realized is we've made a mess of cultures. And we've made a mess of people because we've told people, in order to serve Jesus, you need to act and dress and look a certain way that is not in accordance with the gospel or the word of God. And so what we want to do is try to make people act and move and do things like we do. And, and here's the thing, in the church so often, we call that discipleship. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. We call that discipleship and say, if you can just go through the motion, you're going to be okay. And now we just have these people that have fake smiles on their faces going, I definitely can't tell those people how I'm feeling because then I would break the mold of the culture. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not compassion. We want people to like us and look like us so we can justify ourselves but we're all in pain. All of us, every one of you, have some kind of pain in your life. You're all hurting. I know it. For some of you, I hear about it, and some of you, I don't know about it, but I pray for you because I know we're all hurting because we're all people. And just like David, God, there's people coming after me, and there's things that are trying to take my life. And yesterday was great, but today it's not going so hot. And if we would stop and just say, hey, how's it going? Let's grab coffee. Let's grab lunch and initiate a conversation. We can start doing a process or going through a process of helping each other move towards health and authenticity. But it takes work. So what is compassion? Compassion is simply this. It's genuine mercy and care for others. No matter what their condition Genuine mercy and care for others. This is my definition. I didn't get this out of a dictionary or theological work. This is, this is Barry's definition. It's us ex- exhibiting mercy and care for people no matter what state they're in. No matter what they look like or what we assume about what's going on in their lives. Actually giving a rip about people. Genuinely. And that's the key there is genuinely. It's not feeling sorry for people. We do that in the world around us a lot. We look at stuff on social media and we look at stuff on on TV and we go, oh, that's too bad. And then we feel like we've done something. We haven't. We just haven't. Compassion moves us. One of our values here at Thrive Church is love does. Love does. Stole that from an author named Bob Goff. Love does. That if we truly love, we'll do something about it. See, compassion is this. Compassion is having a heart for the lost. 
compassion for the lost. See, we cannot do what God has called us to do without compassion. And what is it that God has called us to do? He's called us to go and reach a world that doesn't know Him. That's it. He's called us to be with Him and to be in relationship. But out of that, He's saying, your assignment is to go reach people that don't know Him. Why? Because it's the same assignment that Jesus had. That we were out of relationship with God. That we could not approach the Father. And so Jesus came and said, hey, let's restore that. Let's fix that. What's he called us to do? To go into all the world and reach the lost. Matthew 9, 36-38 says this, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest fields. Jesus feels compassion... And then he tells his disciples, our response to compassion is God raise up people who will go and shepherd these people. He looks at them and he recognizes their brokenness and their lostness and their hurt and their pain. And he realizes that the enemy is coming against them seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And he says in response to that, raise up workers that you can go and minister to these people and bring health and healing. That is our assignment. When it's all stripped away, that is what God has called us to. We use words like leadership and ministry, and we do things that are action-filled, but never actually reach people. And thereby, we're not actually doing the thing that God's called us to do. And I believe one of the reasons for that is we lack compassion. That we lack compassion. See, the gospel is not me-centric. The gospel is for you before you have it, and then once you receive it, it becomes for everyone else. Now, God will do a work in your life, and He wants to transform you, and He wants to redeem you, and He wants to take you through a process of transformation. Absolutely. But it doesn't end with you. That once you become a recipient of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ, and you're saved, and you surrender your life to Him, now all of a sudden, you've got something in you that He said, go and give it away. Go and share it with other people. See, how we treat people is very telling about our relationship with God. Because if I realize that God has loved me greatly and done amazing things in my life, I'll want to turn around and and share that love with other people. And so sometimes this paralysis that we experience in the church when it comes to sharing love or having compassion is simply we maybe haven't received what God has for us or we're we're ignoring it and choosing not to walk in it. See, the gospel was not meant to make us comfortable. The gospel was not meant to make you comfortable. And we have confused blessing and comfort. We think those things are synonymous. We say, God bless me. And what we're saying is, God make me comfortable. And God's going, I won't make you comfortable. See, because the gospel is uncomfortable. The gospel will always put us in situations that are outside of ourselves and uncomfortable for us. 
So if my goal with Jesus is to be comfortable, I will be ineffective in doing the thing he's called me to do. Does God want to bless you? Absolutely. But he wants to bless you so you will be a blessing. You read the Gospels. Read the New Testament. Read about early church history. There was nothing comfortable about what those believers were experiencing. They gave their lives, literally their lives, for the sake of the gospel. Because of the compassion. See, the gospel will constantly call you out of your comfort zone. And I would say if you're never uncomfortable, it might be that you're not actually sharing Jesus Christ with others. See, the compassion is compelling Compassion is compelling. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul writes this, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once, uh, once regarded Christ in this way, we do no, so no longer. What's Paul saying? Jesus died for you, and he brought about a change in your life. And then when we surrender our lives to him, our lives don't belong to ourselves anymore. They belong to him, and now we have to go. And, and what it does is it changes our perspective of who people are. What does it mean to look at someone through a worldly point of view? It's judging. I think I know what's up with you. Let me give you five easy steps to get out of whatever predicament you're in. That's a worldly point of view. If you would just is a worldly point of view. We don't look at people through a worldly point of view. We look at them through the eyes of Jesus Christ and through the gospel. So the com compassion becomes compelling. The gospel is compelling for us. So we have compassion for the lost. We want to reach people who don't know Jesus. I pray that God would put a fire inside of you to reach people who don't know him. That we would be a people oh, so on fire for him that we would not be able to stop telling people who he is. And by the way, that doesn't mean we're just going out and preaching on the street corner. It flows through relationship. Have coffee with someone. Go out to dinner with someone. Ask about their story. And then they might say, hey, tell me about your story. And you go, hey, you know what? This is what my life has been, and this is the difference Jesus has made. And they can't argue with your story. It's your story. But there might be something in there that they hear and go, tell me more about that. I want to hear about what Jesus has done in your life. Do you think he could do the same thing for me? This is what evangelism looks like. It's about engaging with people. We need to have compassion for the lost. And lastly, we, finally, we have compassion for the hurting. Because there's people who don't know Jesus. And then there's people who do know Jesus who are hurting people who don't know him are hurting as well. See, you were surrounded by hurting people. I already said this earlier. They're everywhere, and you're one of them. We don't know what's going on in each other's lives, but if we take the time, we could find out. We don't need to solve the problem. Or quote Bob Goff in his book, Everybody Always Says This, we often, what often keeps us from loving our neighbors is fear that of what will happen if we do. 
What keeps us from loving our neighbors is the fear of what will happen if we do. Frankly, what scares me more is thinking about what will happen if we don't. I think sometimes we get so concerned about what will happen. What would they say? Maybe they'll reject me. But the reality is if we don't, who will tell them? Who will reach out to them? And that we have something to give that God wants to minister through our lives to the, those who are hurting around us in very practical ways. We, we're really good at theory in the church today. We're really good at theory. We're not that great at actually doing something about it. And what did Jesus say? The person who hears my word and does it is like a person who built their house on a rock. Colossians 3.11, again, Paul says this. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or, uncircum- uh, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has Grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all of these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's an amazing list. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with, an, bear with one another. Forgive one another and put on love. Could you imagine if the world around us said, man, that church, those people... They are so full of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Are these words that we would say are used to describe us sometimes? Probably not. I say us as the church. In our context, sometimes those are the things that are furthest from what people think about the church. What if, just a hypothetical... What if we actually did this? Could you imagine the impact we would have? And I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm talking about building the kingdom of God and introducing people to Jesus. By the way, the forgiving one another and the dealing with the grievances, those are internal issues. I think we get so wrapped up about the the offense I have against my brother and sister, that we can't think about the gospel. We become hindered and encumbered with with the stress and the anxiety that accompanies that. And God's saying, put that stuff aside. Deal with it. Keep short accounts so that you are not kept from being effective. But I ask, what is the gospel? Might get a variety of answers. Probably in there would be this. It would be telling people that Jesus loves them and has a plan for their lives and wants to save them and that they would go not go they, they would go to heaven and not to hell. And that would be accurate, but there's something deeper than that about the gospel. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about this. It's one word. Unity. Unity. See, we were disunited, we were broken away from the Father, and so Jesus came and he died on a cross for us. Why? So that we can be reunited with the Father. That we see in the Trinity and the Godhead unity that exists there. That unity is supposed to be existing in the body of Christ. In fact, Jesus' prayer, when he's, he's praying for the disciples, he says, Father, I did the job that you've called me to do. And this is before he hung on the cross. 
I've accomplished what you sent me to do. That they now know who you are, that they've had a revelation of who you are. So Father, make them one as we are one. That they would be one with each other. What's the goal of this? Unity. Absolute unity. For us to be able to say, how can I minister? And what we do when we minister to people is we establish oneness. We bring people who are on the outside and looking and separated and we say, come and be a part of the family of Jesus. Come and be reunited with your Father. And, 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 and compassion becomes a gateway to that in our lives. You have the capacity to make a difference. But compassion is key. Will you stand with me as we close? So now what? Where do I go from here? What do I do with this, Pastor Barry? The answer is simple. Ask God. Have a conversation with, with, with your Heavenly Father. It could be that He was touching on places in your heart today where you went, um, I'm missing it a little bit. I'm not doing so hot. I'm not doing so well when it comes to compassion. Knowing this, we all need compassion extended to us, but we also have it to give. Simply ask him, God, give me a heart of compassion. Give me a heart for people. And then ask him each morning, say, God, would you show me one person today who I can extend compassion to? Just one. Just start there. And go through your day with your gospel radar on, going, God, who can I love well today? Who needs an encouraging word? Who needs something from you? Who, who can I reach today? Ask God, and I guarantee you, He will show you. And He will stir up and give you that heart of compassion. Father, this morning, we thank you. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives, God, that we have been extended, that we've had compassion extended to us, that you love us with such a deep love and that you've rescued us and that you've saved us and that you are healing us, that you are our strong fortress. But God, I thank you also that you've called us and you're sending us to those that are hurting and those are lost. So God, I pray that you would stir up in us a heart of compassion, a heart of mercy. God, that judgment and criticism would be far from us. God, that we would press in, that we would see people the way that you see them. And through that, Lord, that scores of people would come to know you. Thank you, Lord, that you entrusted us with this great gift and this great responsibility. We give you praise. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.